Hi, Pastor John here. Welcome to our broadcast. We're glad to have you join us. As believers, we're called upon to know who God is, to know his character and his nature. He's our God, and his word is his self-revelation and our guidelines for living holy lives. He's to be our heart's desire and our highest priority. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that there are times when other things or other people have greater influence on us than God does. When that happens, they become our God. We'll see this in the story of Joash from 2 Chronicles 24. We're going to join the service in just a moment, but first I'd like to ask you to hang around when it's over for an important announcement. I have a special announcement for those people who are watching online. You can't see us or hear us. We're not there. This, this, has, been, this has been an incredible morning, and uh, every now and then you just have to decide that this is what God has given us, and this, we're going to be thankful for it. Amen? But we've had some technical problems. If anybody um, uh, asks you about it, we'll post a recording of the sermon later on today. Uh, well, we haven't been able to enact our live stream. But this allows me to move around. I can go over here and say hi to Peter and Lois. Say hi to Rachel. I got a couple of announcements I want to make. Number one, um, if you've been watching your emails, you know that I've been invited to speak at the Latino Festival uh, in Woodbridge this afternoon. It's actually starting at noon. It'll run till seven o'clock. Um, love to have you join us if you can make it. Uh, I'll be down there. I go on sometime around four o'clock. Kelly and I are going to head down there uh, right after the service. Uh, and something I'm even more excited about is we're going to fire up Sunday school in person again. And we're going to start this next week. And we're going to meet over here in the townhouse at 10 o'clock. Um, Jimmy and, and I and Margaret Schaff are going to be teaching the class. Uh, the class is going to be Union with Christ. Uh, we've thought a lot about the title. Uh, and we, we hear a lot about Union in Christ. But we're going to start out with Union with Christ. I'll have the first session. We'd love to have you join us 10 o'clock. Over here in the townhouse is right attached to the church for you visitors. Um, we will not be recording this, so there will not be an online version of it. If you have any questions, let me know. But we're starting up. It's the first time, I think, in two and a half years, almost three years, that we've had in-person Sunday school. And we're looking forward to it. It's a great curriculum, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So I'd like you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 24. Now, two things while we're doing that. Uh, th there's a lot of names here and a lot of relationships. Um, and if you go through Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, you find out the same person might have different names. And then you have different people that have the same name. So I made a chart. And I hope you like this chart because I worked for a half a day on it. I'm sitting there. My mind was going crazy on it. Now, if you didn't get one, raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. We have some extras in the back. Uh, that'll do a little bit to explain our background here. So uh, while you're looking at that, I want to tell you about something that happened to me a couple years ago. I had a close friend that uh, turned out to be somebody different than what I thought he was. And uh, it did some unusual things that, that hurt, um, damaging to me, damaging sometimes to the church, that sort of thing. And I got I to gotta tell you something. There, there was all this there was emails and texts going back and forth. And have you ever had, have you ever had that one person that you just dread talking to? <laughs> you know, and, and so the email or the, the text would come, I go, oh, 
I'll read this later. I'm not in the mood for it right now. And, yeah, and you know, there, there were accusations and, and uh, all sorts of things were flying around. And, uh, you know, I struggled with that for a while. And we, we all, we want to be liked. Uh, and, you know, and when, when somebody doesn't like us, it's kind of bothering and that sort of thing. But I got to the point to where it was dominating my thoughts. I, I, I mean, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I wonder if I got a text. I probably got a check. You know, I said waking up at 2.30 a.m., then not being able to go back to sleep. Or they said this, or he thought that, and that sort of thing. And I came to the realization that this person had become my God. He was in charge of my emotions. He was in charge of my demeanor. I mean, he dictated how I would get through my day. And if I didn't hear from him on that particular day, I considered it to be a good day. You ever been in that position? It's a question we're going to ask today. Who's your God? Who's your God? Now, we know, we know who God in heaven is, amen? Okay, you guys are with me, right? <laughs> we know who God in heaven is, but there are times in our lives when that God is displaced by someone else or something else. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. It could be a set of circumstances. It could be a hope or a dream. Or it could be something that happened to us perhaps in the past that kind of plagues us as we go to the future. And as we process these things, our path forward and the mood of our heart is dictated by them. Who is your God? And we're going to see this in the story of Israel's seventh king, Joash. And his life was quite an adventure. He was one of the few kings of, of Judah, not Israel, that started out good and went bad. So let me give you some background. The kingdom's divided. The, the, the chart kind of gives you some of this background here. Uh, a guy named Ahaziah, uh, son of King Jehoram, is Judah's king at the beginning here. Uh, his mother, a woman named Athaliah, daughter of the wicked king Ahab of Israel. So the king of Israel is a divided kingdom, Israel of the north, Judah to the south, Ahab, who's king of the northern territory, his daughter marries the king of Judah. And Athaliah encourages Ahaziah to do evil. You're catching all these names, right? This is why we have a chart. And, and he forms an alliance with the evil king Jehoram of Israel. Now, Jehu, who's been anointed by Elisha to be king of Israel kills Ahaziah. And he also kills Jehoram. So he kills the king of the northern kingdom and the king of the southern kingdom. And at that point, Athaliah, the, the king's wife, begins to destroy all the rivals of the throne so that she can become the queen of Judah. Wow. And Athaliah manages to kill every pretender to the throne except one. A very young boy named Joash, her grandson. She had so many grandsons she wasn't able to keep track of them. The boy is rescued and hidden by the priest of Judah named Jehoiada. So Jehoiada raises Joash in secret. Athaliah is queen. She's an evil queen. She wreaks havoc on Judah. 
until Jehoiada forms an alliance with some commanders in Judah and deposes Athaliah and makes Joash king. Joash is only seven years old. So he's a boy king. And Jehoiada is, has a very special relationship with him. And now, as all this happens, Athaliah is executed and Joash, the boy king, with Jehoiada's help, turns Judah around. He, he, he turns him back towards the Lord. He reestablishes the Levitical priesthood. He tears down the altars of Baal. We see them going up and going down throughout the Old Testament. He kills the priests of Baal. He resumes his sacrifice and resumes the worship of the one true God of Israel and begins services in the temple. And all the people rejoice. The people like this. And Joash is on a roll. He's doing good. He's a young king. He's doing the right things. Jehoiada is by his side. Jehoiada is a good and godly man, as we're going to see. And he's raising a good and godly king. And Judah is once again turned towards God. So this is fantastic stuff. And what we're going to take a look at today is two eras in the reign of Joash. We're going to see the better years in 2 Chronicles 24, 1 through 14. And then we're going to see the bitter years in 2 Chronicles 24, 15 through 27. So let's take a look at these better years. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Now, this verse sets the tone for the better years in Judah. It seems to indicate that Jehoiada was a positive influence on Joash. And Joash does the things that the king of Judah is called to do by God. However, if you take a look at the parallel passage in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 12. Now, this is where things begin to get confusing. Because in 2 Kings, Joash is called Jehoash. Same guy different names. So we see that Joash did a nice job in Judah, but he failed to remove the high places. You know where the high places are? They're places of worship to other gods. So we see this term high places come up frequently in the Old Testament, and it talks about places of worship, maybe a temple, maybe there's an ashram or something set up there where people can go worship a god other than the one true god. Well, Joash leaves these high places in place. He doesn't take them down. And, and so this, the, the Hebrew here also seems to indicate that Joash did well, not with Jehoiada, but because of Jehoiada. Now, this is really important. And we find out that Jehoiada is not just a positive influence on Joash. He's got a relationship with something a bit more intimate. He's like a mentor or a teacher, maybe even more than that, with his father having been assassinated, Jehoiada becomes a father figure to Joash. And indeed, we see this in verse 3, Jehoiada got, got for him, got for Joash, two wives, and he had sons and daughters. So Jehoiada is arranging marriages for Joash, and there's a motivation behind that. Joash's entire family is dead. And all of them, good or bad, are descendants of David. That's what the chart shows. And Jehoiada is making sure that the lineage of David continues by making sure that there are sons 
for Joash. Verse 4 says, after this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. Now, verse 7 is going to tell us the, the temple has been damaged, but we also know it's been neglected and been used for several years, probably needed maintenance and repairs just to get everything functional again. Verse 5, and he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. We need to get the temple repaired and we need to do it done quickly and we don't seem to have any funds so we're going to have to raise them. Now I don't want to make too much out of a simple phrase but I want you to notice that as Joash begins to share these things he says do it for your God instead of saying doing it for our God. And I think the author, the chronicler is sending us a signal that somewhere down the road there may be some difficulty here. But for now, Joash's remedy for the temple repairs is to levy some taxes on the people. And notice he tells this to the priests and Levites, which really means that he's telling Jehoiada to do this. His father figure, his mentor. So he's talking to Jehoiada and Jehoiada's tribe, the Levites. And there indeed seems to be some small degree of trouble in paradise at this point. Because we see that the Levites do not act quickly. In other words, they don't just run out and start doing what Joash has asked them to do. Verse 6, so the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief, and said to him, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? Joash calls Jehoiada to task. I told you to do this. Why aren't you doing it? He's not implementing the taxes. The taxes that Joash is talking about have been levied all the way since Exodus chapter 30. There's no indication that there's real tension between the two, but Joash wants an answer to his question. He's wondering why it's not being done, and it appears as though there's a lot of work to do. Brings us to verse 7. For the sons, the followers, read, for the followers of Athaliah, the wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. Now, maybe that they raided the royal treasury as well. Maybe that there's no funds, little money to make the repairs. But Joash seems to be motivated to make all this happen. And Numbers 18 allows for the money to be collected, not just from taxes, but from personal vows. So right here, all the way back in the Old Testament, we see the precedent for tithe and offering, an offering above the tithe. Verse 8, so the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness and all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. Now, given clear direction, given a reason to bring this money in, the Jews respond with a fair degree of exuberance. As a matter of fact, they're even thankful for it. Verse 11, And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest 
and take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored and the repairing went forward in their hands and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service, for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. Now, we, we see a couple of themes popping up here. A couple times we're hearing that these things happened during the days of Jehoiada. But at this point, Joash and Jehoiada have turned Judah around. Now, there's still those high places, but the people seem to be paying attention. They're worshiping in the temple. Sacrifices are being made. And life, life in Judah is good. Haven't we seen this before in the Old Testament? I mean, they have a hard time. They cry out. Something happens. They turn back towards the Lord. They get comfortable, maybe a little bit complacent. Now, we're not seeing that yet, but we can see the cycle beginning. Everything's going well. The people have responded favorably to their new king. The priesthood is reestablished and functioning. The temple's been refurbished. Judah has a godly king and a pious high priest. These, these are the better years of Joash. But the bitter years are coming. Verse 15. But Jehoiada, this is where things start getting interesting. Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. Now, the, the chronicler mentions Jehoiada's age at 130 years and said he was full of days. This is, this is Old Testament shorthand for this was a holy man. This was a godly man. It denotes a good and a godly man. In verse 16, And they buried him in the city of David among the kings. This is most unusual. Because he had done good in Israel and toward God in his house. So Jehoiada receives this high honor in death. He's buried among the kings. And, and he's commended again by the author. This is a good man. He's worthy of honor. In the scriptures, the inspired scriptures, tell us this was a good guy. He was a good priest. Verse 16, verse 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Now, this is a good thing. These are the tribal leaders, the regional princes, the directors, they knew that Joash had a close relationship with Jehoiada. But we need to keep in mind that these princes are the same ones who served under Athaliah when the country was going in the wrong direction. So not only do they come to pay their respects, but they hope to advise, question mark. 
the king. And it says in the scripture, then the king listened to them. Well, that's not so bad. King needs advisors, right? I mean, he needs counselors. He needs people he can bounce things off of. What do they say? Their counsel is devastating. It's devastating. Verse 18, and they abandoned the house. The king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord the God of their fathers, and served the ashram and the idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. So it seems that Jehoiada was a restraining influence on anybody who would try to lead Joash astray. And now that Jehoiada's gone, these guys move in and persuade, amazingly, persuade Joash to abandon all the good and godly things that he accomplished. This is somewhere around 27 years into his reign. Verse 19 says, yet he, God, watch this, this is beautiful. Because we we, kind of have this mindset that when we mess up, God gets mad at us, don't we? And, And I mean, people tell us that's the story of the Old Testament, that There's this vengeful, angry God in the Old Testament. But that's not what we see in the Old Testament. We see incredible grace. So Joash has done all this great stuff, and it seems like in a day, his mentor departs, and these guys go, ah, that wasn't worth it. You know, we had such a good time back then. People were able to do everything they wanted to do. You need to reinstitute those high places. Get those people out of the temple. Taxes are too high. We don't have to keep spending all this money and everything. We can do fine without all that stuff. And Joash goes, oh, that sounds good. And, and God's wrath begins to descend. But watch what happens. Yet he, God, sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. This, this is an act of grace. This is not fire and brimstone falling down on Jerusalem. This is God going, wait a minute, what are you doing? This is, this is the spirit of God moving among his people saying, don't do this. This is bad stuff. Oh, we wish we had that, don't we? Don't, don't we wish that we had somebody to grab us by the arm and go, don't do that. That's bad stuff. Kind of like the Bible. <laughs> kind of like the Holy Spirit living inside us. I mean, don't we have an advantage over these guys? All they had was some guy standing there, don't do that. We've got the Spirit of God going, God, stop. Why are you doing it? These are all expressions of grace. And what they show us is that, you know, every now and then we're going to mess up. Every now and then we're going to drop the ball. God's not mad at us. He's a God of grace and mercy. There will be consequences for the bad things we do. I mean, we see that over and over, but they're not eternal. We don't get kicked out of heaven because we slipped up one time, or maybe even ten. God's grace right here in Joash's reign. The prophets say, turn back towards the Lord, 
These testified against them, second half of 19 says, but they would not pay attention. Verse 20, then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, not the same Zechariah we see later on, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. God, once again, sends a prophet to give the people, to give the man he made king of Judah a chance to turn back yet again. All these people have been in the temple. They've done the right thing. They've lived in the blessings of the Lord. And again, they're turning away. And like Jehoiada, Zechariah is a priest. And he warns them. How are they going to react? Verse 21. This is amazing. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, Zechariah, he said... May the Lord see and avenge. Now, the NIV, I like the translation of the NIV here. It says, may the Lord see this and call you to account. The phrase is used to denote someone looking for something from the Lord. Zechariah saying, you know something? I'll give you the Kavakis paraphrase. You failed to act in faith, and now you're going to suffer judgment for it. This turns out not to be a curse, but a prophecy. Watch what happens, verse 23. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians... Here come those bad guys again. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? We see these names pop up, the Syrians, Babylonians, Chaldeans. And every time they pop up, it's because God's people have done something that he told them not to do. And if we read the scriptures carefully, we find out that God raises these hordes up to punish his people and, and not, 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 to, not to exact punishment upon them, but to turn them back to him. And so the people of Judah have done exactly what God told them not to do. God sends this gift of grace, the prophet Zechariah. They refuse to listen and all of a sudden the Syrians are knocking on their door came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, look at this, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, Thus they executed judgment on Joash. God uses a pagan army to get the attention of his people. When they had departed from him, verse 25, leaving him severely wounded, his servants, watch this, conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest, And killed him on his bed. His own people 
assassinated. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Did you catch that? His own people assassinated him and then refused to bury him in the place of honor. Jehoiada is buried with the kings. Joash is not. Verse 26, those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shemaeth, the Ammonite, Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabite, accounts of his sons and of the many oracles against him and the rebuilding of the house of the Lord are written in the story of the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So the bitter years end in dishonor, disgrace. Joe's, Joash's name is tainted. And he lies in shame, apart from the kings. It's a poignant testimony, but an enduring testimony of his failure to lead the people in a godly manner. So we've seen these two eras in, in Joash's reign, the better years. Joash, with a lot of help from Jehoiada, the priest, becomes king. He's a good king. He turns Judah back towards God. But there's a troubling phrase that we see in verse 2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Still, Joash's reforms are sweeping. Judah enjoys the blessing of the Lord and everything goes well up until Jehoiada dies and is burned, buried among the kings of Judah. Then incredibly, we see these bitter years that come up. With Jehoiada gone, the bad advisors step in. Joash follows their lead amazingly, and this transformation takes place. Joash goes from being a godly man to being another pagan leader to, to uh, a king assassinated by his own people. It, it, it really is tragic. What happened? What happened to Joash? He spent his entire life following the Lord. And then it seemed to be over. It seems like Joash was heavily influenced by Jehoiada. When Jehoiada is gone, Joash falls under the influence of some bad guys. And they're evil. And, and it, leads to, it leads to our practical lesson for today. Now, you know, in the series, we've had a practical lesson, something that we can kind of easily embrace. But really, why do we read our Bible? Not to find out about ourselves, right? The Bible is God's self-revelation. So we, we want to know what, what this passage has to do with who God is, what his plan of redemption is. We, we want to know that, but, but that doesn't mean there's not things we can't learn from this. So our practical lesson is, Joash should have known he watched his entire family being murdered by Athaliah. And these guys, and Joash finds himself all alone. The one he trusted is gone. And we find out that while Jehoiada pointed towards God, Joash was pointing towards Jehoiada. Wasn't he? You see what happened here? Jehoiada was the primary influence on Joash's life. He wasn't Joash's mentor, brothers and sisters. 
He was Joash's God. I don't think that's what Jehoiada was trying to do. But I think that's how Joash saw it. And when Jehoiada's gone, Joash needs now another God. So he turned to other men, and it was a disaster. Joash was worshiping the wrong God. And, and what happened was, because he had his eyes on Jehoiada, Jehoiada determined what Joash did, how he lived, and probably what his moods were. I don't know, the text doesn't tell me that, but the text certainly indicates everything else. Isn't that true? Everything centered on Jehoiada. Then Jehoiada was replaced by these princes we put in quotation marks. Joash was influenced by everyone around him but God. It's a fatal mistake. And, and the funny thing about it is, he seemed to worship God. He seemed to work for God, didn't he? I mean, he's doing all these godly things. But he never made God his highest priority. He never made God the center of his life. We could talk a long time about whether that was Jehoiada or the princess or whether it was actually Joash himself. Whatever it was, it wasn't God. Because Joash changed when the people around him changed. There were things more important than God in Joash's life. See, so when, when, when I say, when I say, who is your God? It sounds like a silly question, doesn't it? But when we look at Joash's life, oh, yeah, yeah. And we could look at Joash and go, what a silly man. What a silly man. But how many times, how many times is our life dominated by something other than God? You know, I had a period of time that went on for several months where my life was dominated by somebody that didn't like me. If they said something at the beginning of the day, the rest of my day was terrible. Until I realized this person had become my God. If you'd have asked me during that time, who's your God? I would go, oh, the one true God in heaven. But let me tell you about this guy. <laughs> How many times do we allow a situation to become our God? That how this situation turns out will determine my mood, my demeanor, and the way I interact with people around me. You see what happens when we allow worldly things to dominate our lives? This is, this is Joe Ash's story. Who is your God? Who, who is my God? Anyone who can determine your moods becomes your God. Anyone who displaces God in your thoughts or in your heart becomes your God. Now, this isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it's a really good thing. My kids are the most important thing in my life. My job. My home. My marriage. Those are good things. But they're not the best. Scripture, scripture tells us several times that we have nothing to fear from others. Hebrews 13.6 says so. 
so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord can help me through this situation. The Lord can help me with this relationship. The Lord can help me with these circumstances I find myself in. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, they're talking bad about me. (laughs) Doesn't Scripture tell us that folks are going to do that? Oh, they don't like me. Scripture tells us that's going to happen too. Psalm 56.10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Brothers and sisters, we have eternity. Those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who have confessed their sins, confess him as Lord and Savior. We have eternity. What can anyone or anything do to us? Great practical lesson. But what do we learn about God in this passage? And to see what we're going to learn about God, we need to shift our sights just a little bit and realize that this story really isn't about Joash. Oh, his name's all over it. And if you go to little pericopes, little headings in there, they'll say, Joash, 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 Joash. But it's not about Joash. Joash is nothing more than an imperfect man, just like every one of us. He does a good job sometimes, and sometimes he just drops the ball. He's a bit too self-focused, I think, but I can be the same way. Perhaps he's a bit naive. I can be the same as that. Capable of doing really dumb stuff, and just talk to Kelly. She'll tell you how capable I am of doing dumb stuff. I do it. But look, look at Jehoiada, a chief priest, a good and a godly man who dies and is buried with kings. Most unusual. There's only one king priest that we see in Scripture. It's another man like Jehoiada. That's a guy named Melchizedek king of Salem, who receives a tithe, a king who receives the offering of a priest in Genesis chapter 14. You can look that up later on this afternoon. And later we hear this about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5. Watch this. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed to high priest by him who said to him, you are my son today, I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest, Jesus. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek appears to show us, to give us a template, a pattern, that a king can also be a priest. And he does this to pave the way for a man who is honored as king and respected as priests so that we, we can understand. He does this to pave the way for Jehoiada so that we can understand that, that a priest can be a king so that we can understand that when the ultimate high priest and the king of kings and the Lord of lords shows up, God's not doing a new thing. He's been telling us about this for 4,000 years. 
God says, don't be surprised. I've been giving you these, these examples. I've been showing you what I'm about to do. So we see in Jehoiada, a priest, a man who's buried with kings, and in Christ, a king and a priest who's buried with men. Why? So that we could be with him. So that we could be with him. Our high priest, our king, is God and one of us at the same time. He's got all over Jehoiada and Melchizedek. He's the perfect king, the perfect high priest. And God shows us this episode in the history of Judah so that we can understand that we may drop the ball from time to time. But our king and priest is still with us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for these men and women of old that reveal so much about you. And then reach deep into our hearts and touch us where we are today. We pray, Father, that we would walk in the truth that our king and high priest is not buried away in some tomb somewhere, but has taken residence inside us. A deposit on our place in eternity. A guarantee of our union with you, Father. One that cannot be annulled, one that cannot be revoked. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Father. And as we prepare to have a meal downstairs together, we thank you even for the food that you provide for us and the hands that worked so hard to prepare it. We give you all the praise and all the glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen. Thank you. Hi, Pastor John here. Welcome to our broadcast. We're glad to have you join us. As believers, we're called upon to know who God is, to know his character and his nature. He's our God, and his word is his self-revelation and our guidelines for living holy lives. He's to be our heart's desire and our highest priority. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that there are times when other things or other people have greater influence on us than God does. When that happens, they become our God. We'll see this in the story of Joash from Second Chronicles 24. We're going to join the service in just a moment, but first I'd like to ask you to hang around when it's over for an important announcement.